Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Med Tech Talk podcast. Episode 120 here, 120 great conversations with wonderful people in MedTech. Happy to add Maria Sains to the list. Maria is the CEO and president of Agia Medical. And we uh, talked about the company later on in the podcast about what they're working on, about how she came to be CEO. But of course, uh, as I do with these podcasts, I enjoy really digging into the uh, the backgrounds of our uh, MedTech leaders and uh, Maria's got an interesting one. Uh, we'll talk a bit about what she was doing prior to MedTech, but uh, we'll we'll cover her stint in guidance. It was clearly an important part of her life and uh, her first CEO job. And uh, we'll dig a bit also into uh, what happened at CardioKinetics. So uh, Maria was very frank, very upfront, and very honest about that experience. So really, really happy to have her on the podcast. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Well, Maria Sains, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. You've got uh, some interesting news from Agia, which you want to get into uh, shortly. But uh, as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, we like to sort of find out a bit about our guests before we talk about the companies. And uh, specifically, what was uh, what was your path in, into MedTech? How did you f- build this career that you have? I have actually been in MedTech since uh, the early days of my career and started in sales and marketing, getting familiar with different uh, exciting medtech products and being part of either selling them or launching them and over the course of the years gained uh, uh, positions of increasing responsibility have been running medtech businesses now for the last 15 years or so excellent where did you know as a as a young person that you wanted to get into medtech or was it just a bit of bit of serendipity it was a little bit of serendipity i uh, was coming out of business school and had a variety of uh, uh, of options in front of me and they were very very different a couple of them were healthcare but others were insurance and steel buckets and I sort of thought to myself, uh, what would I like to have as part of my dinner conversation when I come home? And it felt like it was going to be a lot more exciting to talk about healthcare innovation than it would have been about the size of steel buckets of underwriting costs. <laughs> That's how I went ahead. I don't want to offend the, the steel bucket industry, but uh, I think you, you probably made a good choice. <laughs> it feels that way. I don't think I would like to go back or do it differently if I were able to do it again. Well, a, steel, a steel bucket podcast might be in my future. We'll see. Uh, uh, so let's. Start, you you uh, you spent a considerable time and, and and worked your way up into a great leadership position at Guidance, uh, where you were then involved with the uh, the acquisition by Boston Scientific. I wonder if you could just sort of uh, recount that time for us. That's obviously an, an important point in medtech. I think it uh, it uh, affected the industry broadly. Uh, how did how did you see things from the inside? Oh, sure. I, I I have to admit that I think Guidant is, is one of those incredibly unique companies that will be hard to repeat as it was a product of its time. Um, there have been and there will be more spin-offs and uh, Guidant was created as a spin-off of Eli Lilly's medical devices and diagnostics businesses division. But at the time, there was still a tremendous agility in healthcare innovation in the cardiovascular space. We were making leapfrog changes in the size of devices like pacemakers and implantable defibrillators. 
we were actually uh, producing data that was changing really the breadth of use of a lot of those devices. So the pace at which guided moved was was um, uh, proportionate to really the amount of change that we were seeing in therapy adoption for cardiovascular devices, stents, uh, uh, were, were really something huge for the dilatation uh, and the angioplasty business. And as I said, the miniaturization of uh, defibrillators, the uh, arrival of things like uh, pacing to treat heart failure were, were really significant, significant innovations. And Guidon was able to actually enjoy being part of it. And with that, it produced an incredibly fertile and rich environment for accelerated learning, for career advancement, for growth, for successes that, that I really think as I go back uh, was, was unique and, and probably hard to reproduce if, if we could do it all over again. Um, it was obvious that something that becomes incredibly successful, a lot of other people have their eyes on. So the process of uh, being acquired was a little bit of a traumatic process, I think, for most of Guidon, because it was a very personable experience for many of us. But, but definitely, uh, it was also the time when Medca- healthcare was consolidating into bigger companies and Medtronic was growing and Boston wanted to be bigger and J&J was already big, but wanted to be bigger in medical devices. So as, as everybody knows, we courted uh, or we were courted by both uh, J&J and Boston Scientific. And ultimately, uh, it was a combination of Boston Scientific and, and Abbott who ended up owning the assets of Guidant. So separating into, into pieces was also kind of hard for most. I was running the cardiac surgery division at the time, which was a couple of hundred million dollars in sales and about 500 individuals. We were in a building that was going to be an Abbott building, but we were a Boston business uh, from the date of the acquisition forward. And that created actually even a logistical nightmare where there was an elevator where the doors wouldn't open at a certain floor because it was an Abbott floor and not a Boston floor. Uh, But but ultimately, like like with everything, uh, time actually took care of uh, making the, tradi- the transition as, as smooth as it can be. And, and the businesses started sort of being uh, businesses that, that thrived under the new ownerships. You mentioned at the, at the top that it would be hard to, to recreate uh, a guidance. What was it about? What was so special about the culture? Was it just uh, the right mix of people and circumstances or was there an intentional uh, creation and, and maintenance of that culture that you uh, that you recognize now and that you sort of walked away with some lessons from. I, th- I think there was a purpose to the culture. I think there was a culture that was possible at the time where there was a an incredibly sort of broad and deep sense of ownership. And uh, I know at the time we were doing options and there was something we had, which was global shares, which meant that if you were an employee of the company, you owned a little piece of the company. I think that went a long ways in creating a very, very special connection beyond just employment for the employees of Guidant to the corporation. 
I also think there was something that was purposeful, which was the decentralization of the uh, enterprise, where um, we were able to maintain, I would argue, the entrepreneurial spirit of the businesses that were West Coast based, but also maintain the extraordinary resilience, hard work and and process orientation of the businesses that were based in, in Minnesota. And, and each of those businesses really were able to be incredibly successful on their own merit because they were not equalized into a one-size-fits-all sort of call guidance. We were able to leverage the uh, idiosyncrasies, the the really the the um, special features of the the different businesses, and and let them flourish uh, on on their own merit while feeling part of something bigger. Um, so there was a good combination of decentralization and leverage, and there was a high sense of ownership, and there was actually a very strong mission of innovation, breakthrough, uh, thinking outside the box, uh, breaking the mold, doing things that others hadn't done. And I think that liberated uh, the thinking of people into, into areas that just helped the company really be incredibly unique and, and, and different. Do you, do you attribute that culture to being the fact that guidance was uh, so West Coast focused and, 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 and really not in primarily in a Boston or Minneapolis? To, to a certain extent, the individual that run the company, uh, Ron Dolans, had spent a lot of time running West Coast businesses. I think he had seen firsthand how entrepreneurial the, um, the, the culture was on, on the West Coast and I think wanted to make sure that that was maintained. I think he himself felt that it was appropriate to let people continue to do what they did best in their own individual environments. So I actually give him a lot of credit for having really driven the vision. He enlisted the the senior ranks of the company very early on in making the company what everybody in that group felt was best. So it wasn't totally a mandate from, from above. There was a culture that was driven from his vision and his passion, but there was a lot of inclusiveness and engagement of the senior ranks at the level of the strategy and down to the the lowest of the ranks at the level of ownership. So I, I really think there was something there in terms of the actual individual and the leadership uh, he he uh, practiced that really served the company very well. And final question about that. And what, what impact do you think its uh, its ultimate fate had on the med tech industry in Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area? Uh, obviously, you moved from there to to. to Devote to lead a startup, and we'll get into that in a second. But what impact did it have on on the culture in California? I think the the impact it has had is really how its uh, its employees are still very uh, present in the health tech or the med tech ecosystem. So whether it is at bigger companies or a small startup companies, you find ex guidant people in many many uh, of the enterprises that that are in the healthcare space, in the health tech space today. And with that, I think uh, every one of us has, has taken some of that magic from guidance into our new work environments. And uh, I think sort of the, the guidance magic lives that way. Excellent. That's a great legacy. Well, let, let's talk about your, your move into the startup world. You joined Concentric in 2008 as president and CEO. 
What was that uh, transition like for you? That was that a natural step, or, or was this um, a risk that you were you were taking at the time? There was definitely a, a, a risk. It was a, a risk that felt uh, appropriate for me to take at that time. I still believe that you learned an incredible amount when you join a large company where you see different projects and different teams work in different ways. But I thought it was time for me to sort of work in a more agile a nimble environment and 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 being in in the silicon valley it felt like it was something that i had to try in my career and i'm so glad that i did joining concentric was really uh, exhilarating i i will say with all the great things i have said about guidant probably the the last uh, 12 to 18 months of the guidant boston scientific were were more administrative years in my career because we were going through too many processes around integration, consolidation, and 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 planning for joint entities and other things that were a little bit less about the customer and the therapies and innovation and new exciting things. So, so moving into concentric felt like a, a liberating and a and a very uh, interesting sort of turning point for me. And and what was the experience like compared to what you thought it would be like? So it, 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 it's 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 a bit of a wake up call because literally <laughs> join a a small company as the the person in charge, you very quickly realize that the buck stops with you and that all eyes point to you to make decisions, to help sort through priorities, and to establish which way we go left, right, fast or slow, or or bold or conservative, <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, it's just like you, you got the monkey in a, in a very big way. I had the fortune of working with a fabulous team that was very responsive to, to working with me on making sure that we knew what our priorities needed to be. I think, uh, I've always liked to focus and prioritize because I think that's when you get most done. But I think it was really, uh, joining the small company world where it became obvious that unless we just narrowed down what we needed to get done, we could be lost in being very busy and feeling like we were putting a ton of hours into something, but getting nowhere. So, um, it was, it was, uh, a, an incredibly rich experience. We needed to make sure that the company was profitable. We had a, a, a big, um, project to take our technology as a very small company into the Japanese market, which was not an insignificant undertaking. And we then were as as far as really working on a technology that was going to self uh, disrupt the business that we had built over the years because it was going to be a hundred percent of uh, cannibalization of what we had done prior, and all of them were pretty bold moves and 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 big undertakings for a company that that had about eighty employees at, at the max. And uh, uh, but again, the the team made it all possible, and and the amount of focus that we we put on on the right things at the right time, I think, helped us execute very well. And now we'll take a quick break. Please save the date. May thirtieth, two thousand and nineteen, we'll be holding the MedTech Conference in Minneapolis. Been working with Leslie Trigg and Kirk Nielsen, our esteemed co-chairs. We met uh, with our uh, kickoff group in Minneapolis last month, and uh, it's going to be a great day. So make sure you do save the date. We're actually doing something a little different this year. We're going to have a a larger networking opportunity the night before. So while the conference itself will be happening on May 30th, we're going to be inviting everybody who's attending the conference 
to a large welcome to the MedTech conference party on May 29th. So make sure you block off the uh, afternoon and evening of May 29th as well. It's going to be a MedTech extravaganza. Now let's get back into this conversation with Maria Sains. What was your um, philosophy in, in choosing to join Concentric or what were you looking for? Some, it's, I've been told that you, you should wait for the, the right opportunity, the, the one that has, that has the, the, obviously the best chance for success. Don't just take a, a CEO role to, to say you've been a CEO, but you really have to find uh, an enterprise that, that has a chance to succeed. Did, were you selective in making that move? And is that what ultimately led you to Concentric? I have to be honest and tell you that I wasn't selective. I think although that is an incredibly uh, good goal to have, I would also tell you that as, as, I, as I get to see how some CEOs get recruited, when you are a first-time CEO, I think it falls into the beggars can be choosers. So uh, if you're willing to just take a risk and, and take the helm of something and make something good about it, then you really can be choosy. I think in the beginning, there's a lot of people that are willing to take the chance on a first-time CEO in situations that are not always the most ideal. And Concentric was a turnaround. Um, they, the board had decided that they wanted a change in leadership. The, board, uh, the company had attempted to go public and that hadn't really gone all the way. So there was a bit of a reset button that was being pushed at the same time as I joined. But again, I, I was totally up for the task. Sure. No, absolutely. And it worked out. I mean, you were acquired a few years later and, and investors got their money back, which is always a good, uh, a good thing for uh, a first time med tech. Um, and that was a tough time. I mean, in 2008, I mean, the things obviously on a macro level, but on a med tech level as well, the bottom really dropped out of uh, a lot of things was uh, what was that uh, transition like? Had you had you already moved into the role when uh, things started going south in the in the September of 2008 or, or I'm not quite sure when you I guess you joined in, in that spring so things probably got rough a few months after you joined Concentric that must have required some adjustment on your part well it, it did I mean it it's it's it, it wasn't necessarily an easy time probably 2008 was where we're in the middle of the oh crap I think we know what we need to do but we haven't <laughs> When you start making progress, you start gaining the confidence not only within the team but of 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 the the, the board, the investors to to keep moving. There was a little bit of of trying to figure out what was going to be in the best interest of everyone for the company in a very difficult environment. And one of the things I I always said to my team is that we need to do and adjust as much as we need to so that we control our own destiny. So we were not going to be raising any more money and we need to make sure that our money was going to last until we got into Japan, until we had the future technology ready mm -hmm. for at least the European market. Uh, and we made very tough choices. We actually had to let go of a number of people. It wasn't necessarily an easy uh, process for anyone, but actually not for my team who had been very loyal and had been with the company for a long time. But it's one of those where you can choose to 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 ignore having to make those tough choices, and then one day you just everybody goes under, or you you really proactively right size the company to what it can afford to do the right things and slowly earn your your right to keep moving and keep making progress. And, and from there, you went on to uh, president and CEO of Cardio Kinetics. Uh, that was a, a very interesting company. What was what was that experience like? What was the, the transition to this new company like? This sort of would have seemed to be a return to 
what you were doing at Guida, at least the, the, the same area you were cardiac surgery there. This was more cardiovascular company. Correct. So that was part of the appeal, going back to cardiovascular, although I have to admit that neurovascular became a very comfortable second home to me at Concepcion. <laughs> uh, cardiovascular, I mean, the, 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 uh, the possibility of innovation and, and changing the care paradigm in heart failure patients is gigantic. But as big as it is, it is just as complex and, and, and really difficult to really um, do easily. So there are a lot of skeletons in the closet of, uh, of heart failure therapies and treatments. And unfortunately, cardiokinetics ended up being one more. I think we had what I would call an extraordinarily elegant and easy to use technology. So it the, the product was called the parachute, and it actually looked like an inverted parachute, and it was very easily and safely implanted into the left ventricle of ischemic heart failure patients, so patients that develop heart failure after a heart attack or an ischemia in their heart. And, and really, this, this sort of new uh, device inside your, your left ventricle allows the heart to function again as a, as a healthier heart. So a tremendous amount of improvement in some of the patients, people that couldn't really tie their shoelaces, that all of a sudden were walking out in the park with their, with their grandchildren, uh, younger individuals that thought that the, their days were counted and all of a sudden got a new leash on life and were willing to start families and doing things like that. Incredibly, incredibly heartwarming uh, patient anecdotes and patient cases, but a very complicated patient group that is, that is not homogeneous. So as we embarked in a clinical trial, it became an incredibly um, difficult undertaking to do a a trial in the space. We faced a lot of challenges with FDA, and ultimately, it really was a, a trial that really needed to be reworked very substantially. And the requirement for financing was was steep, and it was very difficult to secure financing, given the amount of risk associated with all of the unknowns as to the exact patient population, the level of response to the therapy. Um, so, very unfortunate way of of ending what was an incredibly promising journey. Uh, but again, as I said, probably a product of the complexity of these patients, this disease, who cares for them and how any of the therapies needs to fit into that um, uh, convoluted uh, sort of set of circumstances. And you had a mix of, of, of um, VCs and strategic, strategic investors. I know Edwards was involved in the company <laughs> as well. How was that? Uh, how was sort of managing those uh, those dual interests in running the company? Did it complicate things having Edwards or a corporate? I don't want to say just Edwards, but a corporate so, so involved with the company, or um, did it did it make things any easier or any more difficult? I, I think it's 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 all of the above. So mm -hmm. clearly, when you have strategic interest, it's a lot easier to attract venture money because uh, the venture money sort of feels a little bit more secure if there's a, a strategic really with their eyes set on on one of these companies. So that's that's definitely a, a positive. I, I do believe a strategic can also provide a lot of operating uh, value in on the board. More traditionally, your venture people are very savvy investors and they sit on your board. But as you're reviewing operating plans and, and challenges that you face around product development, regulatory with FDA, reimbursement, commercialization, 
they're sometimes a little bit more out of their league and and, and the people that represent uh, the strategic interest are actually dealing with some of those challenges day in, day out. So there's an opportunity there to strike a, a strong and valuable partnership with uh, with a strategic partner and strategic investor. The, the area where it gets a little bit more complicated and definitely was the case in um, in cardiokinetics is that we went as far as 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 sealing a structured deal with Edwards Life Sciences. So for all intents and purposes, we actually had an agreement in place to be acquired based on some milestones in the future by our strategic partner. And and I think that's an incredibly good scenario if the timeline to to when uh, when, when that sort of marriage gets consummated is short. In our case, it started being a little bit longer into, into years. And, and you face different challenges. You make different, you need to make different decisions along the way. And then the interests are not always aligned between your traditional venture investors and, and venture equity and, and the new strategic partnership. And I think that definitely in our case created a complexity and probably um, just a, um, more difficulty difficulty around aligning on on the right path forward and 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 lots of lessons learned for me definitely in in that area excellent that was a very elegant answer to a terribly worded question so thanks for saving me on that one uh, <laughs> let's uh let's get into what you're you're doing now i mean the news of the day of course is is a, a geomedical uh tell us a bit about uh your transition to this company because this is out of uh cardiovascular completely tell us a bit about a geo so this is this is very very different this doesn't have the vascular word in it because I <laughs> cardiovascular for the first time i don't have a v <laughs> but, but uh, i will admit that i felt like getting into Women's health was something that I personally wanted to do. I have um, been involved uh, all the way from from the early guidance years into different sort of female leadership initiatives uh, along the way. And I've always felt that doing something from women for women was something that I I just had to do before I sort of put a bow on, on my career. So when Nigeria knocked on my door, it definitely was worth exploring. I, I have tremendous respect for the team that is here, what they have accomplished. And I really think this is sort of sits a little bit at the crossroads of really a medical condition, uh, but a very strong quality of life um, um, issue for, for many women. We at IGEA are developing a very uh, elegant solution for women that's that have very heavy menstrual bleeding to be treated for it in an office setting by their gynecologist. So we're trying to bring a procedure that has traditionally belonged in the operating room into the gynecologist's office with a very safe and patient-friendly system that will provide relief and restore women back to very low levels of bleeding and uh, normal cycles. Are there other... uh treatments out there that uh, are able to keep the women out of the uh, operating room or is that the only choice right now for treatment? We are the only system that has been designed for the office. There mm-hmm. are other treatments that are available that some clinicians have started to use in the office setting because the trend in general is to take some of the 
what were more invasive sort of therapies and diagnostic procedures away from the hospital setting and more into the uh, first the surgery centers and now uh, the the actual office setting. I see. And your your uh, your product is the adaptive vapor ablation technology, or at least that's the technology. Uh, what uh, you, you've you've received FDA uh, approval for that? Uh, what is sort of the well? Let's first talk about the technology. Exactly, what are you doing to uh, to treat the abnormal uterine bleeding? Okay, so we are using actually the the power of natural wa- water vapor, and that is what we use to ablate the uh, tissue inside the uteri of women that suffer from this condition so that the bleeding is significantly reduced or totally eliminated. There are other systems in the marketplace that use other forms of energy. They are radiofrequency energy, the energy from cold therapy, and, and other means. Ours is unique in that we use the the power of this natural water vapor. Vapor also expands very homogeneously across the cavities. So we have a very uniform delivery of the vapor across all of the tissue that really needs to be touched by the vapor to produce the clinical results. And this is done uh, by uh, transvaginally, so naturally, And our probe uh, that goes into the anatomy of the woman is incredibly atraumatic, very soft tip. It possibly could look like a very slim tampon. um, And that actually provides for a more comfortable procedure for for the women and therefore more uh, adapt to the office setting with very low levels of sedation. If, if needed. And as I mentioned in my question before, you've got, you've got the FDA approval, uh, which used to obviously be the, the, the goal line for a, a lot of companies, but uh, you're, you're now pushing forward with a, a post-approval uh, study as well. Tell us a bit about that, that process. You have the FDA approval, but you're still doing more clinical testing, correct? Or more testing, not clinical testing. Sure. sure. Yeah. So we received FDA approval in the middle of 2017 Uh, Our trial, in order to secure FDA approval, was a trial where we enroll 155 women uh, to undergo the therapy. And what the FDA wanted to see was the data from that trial at 12 months. We submitted that to FDA and, as I said, got approval mid-2017. The trial continued because we wanted to see how those women were doing at 24 months and also at 36 months. And we completed the 36-month follow-up earlier this year. And as we were looking at the opportunity to continue and further the evidence in support of this vapor system, we thought one very important aspect to investigate further was how easy is it to go back into these cavities of the women that have had an ablation procedure after the ablation procedure. In order to do that study, we wanted to have cleaned up and completed the the three-year follow-up on all of the women that were in the study and then start this new investigation around the ease of getting back into those, uh, those uteri. The reason why it is important is because when women usually get ablated uh, premenopausal and at, after uh, sort of their, they, they've had their children. So very often we're talking about 
30-some-year-olds, which hope to have lasting positive effects of ablation for 10-plus years. But there's a lot of other things that those women could have. Sometimes they have abnormal bleeding later. They could have some, they could have cancer. They could have pain in their abdomen that needs to be understood. And in order to understand all of that, of course, if you cannot get back into the uterus, you have to take the uterus out and perform a hysterectomy. Uh, But there's a lot of other minimally invasive mechanisms by which a physician can go in and look or possibly perform a biopsy or possibly actually uh, perform other interventions that may help these women in a minimally invasive way deal with whatever subsequent problems they may have. So we wanted to investigate that aspect. We needed to have, we could only do it when we had completed the three-year follow-up and we started down that path on the PACE2, PACE stands for post-ablation cavity evaluation, uh, a little bit earlier this year, and we're moving on that study really, really quickly. And, and did that, uh, the need for that information to, to see if you were able to uh, access the uterine cavity afterwards, is it something that came from the physicians that they wanted to have this uh, or they wanted their patients to to be able to be treated further down the line? Or is it patients who perhaps have heard about other procedures that have maybe led to complications down the road because they, they weren't able to access the cavity? What uh, What led you to to study that? A little bit of a triangulation of physician input, some of the reported data on other systems, ablation systems that were preventing cavity access after ablation, and, and really the, the understanding of what these women needed long-term. So a lot of discussions with physicians, which is usually the best way to really understand from the voice of the customer where you really need to bring more value really understanding that this could open possibilities that weren't afforded to them before. We had had a very, very preliminary uh, data point around cavity access from uh, some patients that we had treated outside of the U.S., just 11 patients that gave us some confidence that maybe vapor had a different way of of having the tissue respond long-term after ablation. So we were basing uh, our our appetite to do this work on some preliminary data, but really we're responding to a need from the conversations with clinicians, the reported data on uh, other alternatives for ablation. This really adds a a new dimension of sorts for for medtech products. I I think there's a feeling that in some cases, medtech product is used and you don't don't know what five years or 10 years down the road, the impact might be. I know there's. it's becoming more and more common to have those longer-term studies on the therapeutic benefit, but the, the larger impact on the body. Do you think this is something that other med techs will be asked to, to study going forward, or is this a unique situation for the area that you're in? I think generically, it's the right thing to really understand how a therapy will affect the long-term health of a patient. So I I think that's one of the reasons why FDA sometimes imposes very long-term follow-up on some of the studies for the approval of devices because they want to make sure that that it is well understood how a device will survive inside the body, what other consequences it could have. I also think it's the responsible thing to do in our case 
it, it is interesting that some people have labeled hysterectomy as a diagnostic hysterectomy, which really means that because you can't really go back and look, your only choice is to take the uterus out, which feels like the wrong thing to approach really options for that woman. I mean, it may just be that the woman has very um, severe cramping, but if you really have no way of knowing what could be in there, could it be a tumor? Could it be cancer? Could it be just some abnormal bleeding folk, uh, area of her normal bleeding without knowing when in doubt, you just have to play it conservative, right? But it feels like the wrong thing to do to not have more options just because you did something that really shut off other options earlier on. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a, an excellent way of differentiating your technology as well. So, and, and you are uh, launching in 2019. This is, you're launching the, the next generation uh, system in 2019. Yes. Can you talk yes. a bit about your commercial uh, undertakings? Yes, we're, we're starting to get ready for commercialization uh, now very soon next year. Uh, we have made some changes to the device just to make it easier to manufacture so that we can actually place it in uh, many, many sites. When we think about going to the office setting, the requirement for systems is going to be bigger than if you're just uh, focusing on, on the hospitals. So we wanted to really get to a platform that was uh, more scalable and easier to manufacture. And that's what we've been working on in the last several months and will be coming to the market. Uh, we want to make sure that we're going to support the sites well with um, clinical specialists so that they're well trained and they understand how to use the device. We're making it very simple to use as it relates to screens and, and symbols so that it's all very intuitive. The procedure takes two minutes. Once the probe is inserted in the patient, it is a very short um, exposure to the vapor for the patient, just two minutes. So nothing has changed as it relates to the vapor, the delivery of the therapy, the length of the therapy in the second generation. All we're working towards is just scalability. And are you hiring to uh, uh, hiring a sales staff or, or expanding your sales staff? We have started to hire marketing staff and then mm -hmm. at the beginning the year will begin with our sales uh, expansion. Excellent. Well, it's a it's a great story. Uh, thanks for uh, sharing uh, some insights from your uh, your really uh, fascinating career. It's uh, it's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much, MedTech Talk podcast listeners, for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Maria Sains, and uh, I hope you'll help out the podcast. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, whatever channel you're listening to. And of course, if you would give us a rankings, let us ranking, let us know how we're doing. Finally, reach out to me. As I mentioned at the last podcast, we've got a, uh, a different schedule. We're going to be sending out one of these podcasts every other week. And uh, so far, the numbers continue to be great. So thank you for that. But if you have any thoughts on this, uh, this new schedule, please do reach out to me. I can be reached on Twitter at MedTechTom. Feel free to DM me or tweet at me there. Or you can email me, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y. Healthag is the producer of the MedTech Conference and the MedTech Talk podcast. The MedTech Conference, once again, is happening on May 30th, but we will be having a, uh, an opening reception on May 29th. So block off both dates. Make sure you register. Do so before January 30th, and you'll save yourself a boatload of money. Thanks so much. Tune in next time. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you at the MedTech Talk podcast.